Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about communication. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you something that's really exciting. In the last year, our sermons have been listened to over 11,000 times on different podcast hosts. It's a pretty remarkable number, and we're really thankful for that. It's our goal that that number would continue to go up, though, and one of the best and easiest ways to make that happen is if you would leave us a rating and or review on whatever podcast host you're listening to this on. We would really appreciate that. As I say a lot, we think that our content is helpful to people and we want more people to hear it. And so please, if you have been impacted in any way by our sermons, please, please, please leave us a rating and or review. We would really appreciate it. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Hey, good morning, everybody. I am Chad, the pastor here. I'm glad that you're with us today. I want to add to the announcements of this morning uh, something I, th- I think is exciting, and that is at our fall kickoff, we're going to do something that, since I've been the pastor, we've never done before, and that's uh, because for a long time we didn't have any children around here, and, and so we didn't have a need to do it. But we're going to do something I know is going to make my dad happy, because he talks about it a lot when he does the announcements, and uh, I'm going to email this out later this week. But we're going to do, uh, as part of our fall kickoff, promotions of kids from one of our classes to the next class. And so I don't know how that's going to look yet because we've never done it here, but we're working on it. And so if you have a kid and you love them, uh, make sure you're here at the fall kickoff so that they can be celebrated, kind of taking the next step in their, their church journey. That was like the ultimate guilt trip, wasn't it? Um, and so be here for that. And, and as we talk about fall, uh, big transitional statement into my sermon here, ready? Uh, one of the things that we do think about is football. Football is starting this week. And uh, I know you probably could have guessed this by looking at me, uh, but I played high school football. <laughs> joke. Uh, and uh, not a good joke. Um, and I played two years of, of high school football. And, and you may know this if you grew up playing sports at all. At the end of every season, you have like this team party and, and you get together and then the coach says nice things about people. And I've kind of been on both sides of that because my dad coached me in baseball for a long time. And so I saw my dad writing these things and trying to figure out like what good things to say about certain kids that had no redeeming athletic qualities at all. And it's like, oh, their, their attitude was so great. Like they, they just... they. They tried sometimes, you know, like that type of thing. And so I'd been on that side of it. And so my senior year after football, um, I, I'm there and, and they're giving the speeches and my position coach is talking. And, and I don't remember the, you know, the first 30 seconds, but the last 30 seconds of, of my big speech after my high school football season was devoted to my position coach saying, and Chad is really good at baseball. If you want to watch good baseball, then you go out this spring and you watch him play baseball. It's like, ah, nice. You get t- so just by that, right, you, you now have a guess about how good I was at the sport called football. I did have two tackles in one game on kickoff, and that was the highlight of my career. The only time my dad was late to a game, actually. He missed them both. Uh, but this is, this, is, this is why I tell you that story. What people say when something ends, what they say about you is really indicative of how, how the whole thing went, right? 
I mean, could you imagine how different the speech was if I was the star football player, right? It wouldn't be like, Chad, nice kid, watch him play baseball. He would have said something about my football skills. He would have said something about the way that I contributed to the team. I think we ultimately know that this is this is kind of going to happen at our funerals. Hate to be a Debbie Downer right here at the end of summer, but but like what people say about us will be indicative of of the way in which our lives went. Uh, there's this pastor that's a hero to me, and it's funny because. Uh, you know, he's not the guy that a lot of people would picture. His name's John Piper. He's a little old man that usually needs a haircut. He preaches behind a pulpit that's like as wide as this stage up here. Very old-fashioned in his communication skills. But I, I'm drawn to him. And when I think about what I want to be like when I'm 75, 80, uh, I, I don't think about, you know, maybe some of the cooler, more famous pastors. I think about John Piper. And one of the reasons for that is... I saw him in an interview, and, and he was in an interview with another famous pastor, and they asked both of them uh, this question. I don't remember one of the responses, but the answer that John Piper gave was uh, life-changing in some ways, something that stuck out with me forever. They said, this is so bad, I, I, I'm going to be at this age at some point, I'm glad I'm not yet, but he, they said, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Like, oh, <laughs> like they have me dying already, you know? And John Piper's answer was so thoughtful and so different than anything I, I would have expected. He, he didn't say, I want them to remember that I built this church or that I was a great preacher or that I sold a bajillion books or whatever. He said, I want my kids to talk about how patient I was. And I want the people who work under me at this organization to remember that I was great to them. And I want my wife to talk about how loving I was. And, and even what was so humble about it, because he's such a great man, I think, uh, is that after he would say each of them, he'd say, but they probably won't. Uh, and so it was like this humble, beautiful answer that had nothing to do with the greatness or the size of his ministry. And it's always, it's always stuck with me. I think that if all of us could look inside of ourselves, that we would desire that we would live a great life. Um, there's this hashtag uh, that's out there right now. Some of you have probably used it. Uh, if you don't know what a hashtag is, uh, it's, it's a way of, um, I don't know, indexing things on the internet. I guess that's the easiest, least cool way I could possibly say it. But uh, this is a hashtag that's on the internet quite often. I searched my Facebook feed because you can do that to see if any of you have used them. And somebody from our church has used it a couple of times. They're not here today for me to make fun of them, but, um, but, but they've used it. And, and normally, when you see this hashtag, it is connected, my best, living my best life. It is, it is connected to people being at the beach or eating something that looks really good, or starting a new job, or being with their dogs. It's happened a lot. I actually did a little research on this. I went through the Instagram. Uh, and usually it's connected to just people's successes in life. And, and, and we all know that that's, that's not really how it works, right? That's not living your best life. But this phrase came to me when I was looking at this passage of scripture that I promise I'll get to eventually because in the passage we're going to look at today he talks about one of the components of living an incredible life one of the components of living actually living your best life and I think there's something that we all know uh, that living our best lives has nothing to do with going to the beach more frequently having more money being at the best job or anything like that uh, we know that because we see lots of examples of people 
who should be living their best lives, and it seems like their lives are a total mess. You can name uh, a whole bunch of celebrities that I won't name, and you can just look at their lives and say, wow, I mean, if we're just using the hashtag style, then they're always living their best life. They're always on a boat. They're always at the beach. They're always in a new dress. They're always doing all the things that we kind of have connected to living their best lives, but their best lives don't seem that healthy or that good or really that important, frankly, in a, in a deeper sense. Um, and, and I read some blog posts that, that hit on this. The lady that wrote it said, let society and social media tell it, and living your best life means that you're traveling the world, landed your dream job, got accepted into grad school, etc. Living your best life praises the finish line and ignores all the work it took to get there. Are you still living your best life when you've saved extensively for a year just to afford that dream vacation or were rejected from numerous jobs before you finally landed your current one? With such an emphasis on large accolades and accomplishments, the phrase doesn't even leave room for the mundane moments in life that are worthy of praise and acknowledgement. To truly be one's best self, there will be moments of highs and lows. As my dad always reminded me, life is fluid. I think she's right on the money. I mean, life is going to be hard. It's going to be good. It's going to be up. It's going to be down. It's going to be all over the place. And in the, in the midst of it, the question I think that, that we're going to answer as we, as we go today is how can we continue in the midst of all the good and the bad, how can we continue to live our best lives? How can we, and this is the way that Peter's going to say it in the book that we're going to look at in the Bible, how can we live lives, because I think this is at the heart of living our best lives, how can we live lives that we love and others like because we have influenced those people. Here's my proposition for this morning. I know this is going to be, we'll get to it, I promise. I'm just going to say it because it seems like such a stretch. But then we're going to act, I'll try to do my best to, to show how the Bible teaches this. But here, here's, here's what I think the point of this passage is. Godly communication and the motivations behind it help produce a life that you love and others like. Uh, it helps you live your best life. And if I were you and sitting in your seat, I'd be like, did you just make that up? Because that, that seems like a huge stretch. That would be my response if I were you. And, and so with that in mind, let's turn our attention to 1 Peter. We're going to look at 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. But before we get there, I just want to say that 1 Peter is, is my favorite book in the Bible. Uh, I, if you grew up in a church setting like me, went to a Christian college like me, then maybe you've asked this question. If you didn't grow up in those kind of places, then you think this is such a stupid, ridiculous question. But like, if you were stuck on an island, what Bible book would you take with you? I know it's, it's ridiculous, but uh, this would be my answer, First Peter. And one of the things I really like about First Peter is there's this cool flow to it. And, and the flow is kind of like this. This is who you are as Christians, and because of that, this is what you have as a Christian. This is what you can look forward to as a Christian. This is who you become as a Christian. This is what you are as a Christian. And then he'll flow out of that and he'll say, because, because of those things, this is how you live your life. And I like that a lot. I, I think that the church does a very poor job of reminding us why we should live in certain ways. Uh, the church has been really guilty, I'm sure that I have been really guilty, of just saying, hey, here's what you do. But sometimes it's so detached from who we are and what we have in Christ that it's like, well, why? Why, why should I do that? And Peter doesn't do that. He says, here's who you are and what you have as a Christian, if you're a Christian. And so here's how you ought to live 
your life. And one of his broad, here's how you ought to live your life statements comes in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I love this. This is one of my favorite verses, two verses in the whole Bible. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. At the beginning of our passage that I'm going to read in just a second, he's going to say, finally, and it kind of sounds like he's about to wrap things up and end it, but he still has a couple of chapters to go in First Peter and what he's writing. But he's saying, finally, because he's wrapping up this section about living such good lives, which can also be translated beautiful, living such beautiful lives that the world around us, they, they want to hate Christians, they want to mock Christianity, but they have to look at us and go, wow. And then, hopefully, some of them give their lives to Jesus themselves. Peter's saying, finally, if you want to know how to live your best life, if you want to know how to live a beautiful life, if you want to know how to live a life that you love and others like, finally, here's, here's something you need to pay attention to. And so here, here it is in, in verse 8 of chapter 3. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. We don't really like the internal things very much when it comes to trying to live our best lives. Uh, and usually people don't write that hashtag and say, wow, God's really moved me forward internally. You can't see it on the outside, you know. I've, I've learned to have joy or peace or whatever. That's not usually how our brains work. We are, especially as American, modern American people, we are, we are driven by action. Like what you can see and what you do. And Peter says, finally, as I wrap up this section on living a beautiful life, living a good life, part of living your best life, I want you to focus on these internal things. Now, here's what's cool about these. Uh, they apply to just such a broad kind of spectrum of our lives and, and, and mainly in our relationships and how we relate to others. But like I said last week about the passage we looked at, it's so easy to see how all of these are really, 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 really important when it comes to the topic that we've been covering over the last four weeks, and we'll cover one more time next week, communication. All of these things that Peter says are super easy to connect to how we communicate with others. And if you think like, well, Chad's just stretching to kind of put this passage into a, a communication sermon series. Literally the next verse, he's talking about communication. He's talking about the things that we say. And so, so I think Peter would be fine with us saying, well, this really applies to the words that I say to others. Just briefly, I want to look at them. I mean, the first one, be like-minded. It's really common in the New Testament. Paul especially talks often about being of one mind with others. I just preached on this in the last sermon series that we did, and so I don't want to spend very much time talking about it. But if you missed it, go to wilsonville.church slash one another. You can hear me help preach a whole sermon on, on what it means to be of one mind with other people. But, but this morning it's important to just point out that this can really only be done within the context of Christianity, fellow Christians. Uh, that's when Paul says it usually. He's talking about the church, be of one mind with one another. That's hence the sermon series name, with one another. But listen to these verses. Philippians, or excuse me, Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect 
will. Philippians 2.5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It is impossible to be of the same mind with people who are in no way trying to think like God and who are, trying, who are not trying to have the mindset of Christ. And so this first one, we just have to just admit it. And if you're not a Christian, I'm sorry, but we're never going to think the same. I mean, if you're a Christian, I am a Christian. I and we have devoted our entire lives to, to Jesus and to being like Jesus and to following Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian, it's just impossible for us to have the same mindset because our paradigms are so vastly different. Our whole goal in life is to live for Jesus, and, and, and to this point, you've rejected Jesus as the Savior of the world. But as far as it goes within the church, we should do our best to be like-minded, to, to be in harmony with one another, to be on the same page. We were, we were building that fire pit out at the church property yesterday, and uh, and we were talking about where to put some rocks, and, uh, and it wasn't heated at all. This is going to make it sound like it was really heated, but RJ, who's right over here, just said, it's not worth splitting the church over. <laughs> and, and we thought, man, that'd be a good motto for a church because of so many churches and how negative they can be and how much fighting there can be. We've, we've been, by the grace of God, and I'm so thankful for this, we have not been that church while I've been the pastor ever. There's been very little fighting or arguing uh, especially about stupid things but the rocks almost split us and we thought wait we gotta we have to be of the same mind when it comes to this fire pit and what I think it is it's not saying it's not saying we're never going to disagree about where things go or how things should be done it's saying that in the midst of all that we are going to be so unified because of our connection to Jesus our goal all of our goals is to bring glory to Jesus and so where the rocks go or how many seats we put out these things will never split us because we are of the same mind we have hearts that are on the same things but the other ones that he says here apply to all of our relationships. And you'll see that pretty easily. He says, be sympathetic. It means to share the same feeling as somebody. Really what he's talking about is feeling what somebody else is feeling. John MacArthur says, believers must not be insensitive, indifferent, or censorious, even toward the lost and the pain of struggling anxiously, those who are struggling anxiously with the issues of life. As far as communication goes, this goes two ways, right? All of the things that you should say, all of the things you should communicate to other people should come through the lens of why are they in this situation? What is it that makes them the way they are? How have they gotten to this place? But also we should filter other people's or, or communication with us through that same lens. Are they having a bad day? Did they grow up in a home where this was normal communication style? Have they, been, have they had anything else modeled when it comes to the way that they communicate and the way that they talk? I think one of the best things that we could do is just try to feel what other people feel when it comes to how we talk to them. I'm going to come back to that with an illustration in a minute. The next thing it says is love one another. Obviously, that's a big deal. All of our communication should be filtered through whether it is loving or not. Uh, years ago, and this resonated with people, at least it stayed in people's minds, I defined love as this way, and I have ever since. Love is them above you as their good you pursue because of their value. 
I do think it's the world's greatest definition of love unless somebody's written a better one in the last couple of years. It's placing others above yourself because of their God-given value and it's all for their good. Not so that they're happy or so that life is easier for them, not so that you never offend them, but because you want what is absolutely best for them. And I think we should communicate with that in mind. They're more important than me and when I talk, when I speak, when I post, when I email, I'm emailing for their good because of the intrinsic and inherent value that God has, has given them in creation. Next, he says, be compassionate. And it's super closely related to sympathy. And uh, it is about being impacted by the pain that others feel so that you feel it deeply, which sounds virtually synonymous to how that other Greek word is defined. And, and, and so I, I took a guess at why Paul used these two words. And this may not even make sense to you, but it made sense to my brain. Here's my guess in Paul using these two words for something that sounds so similar. I think perhaps he is saying that you need to do your best to understand people why they're doing or saying the things they're doing. You need to do your best to understand, but also you need to do your best to feel what they would feel, to feel for them. So you understand them with your mind, but you also feel for them in your heart. I think that if we did that, it would change, it would change how, how we interact with people. Uh, so here's, here's my example of, of what that looks like in my own relationships. I uh, was frustrated with my son about something the other day. I don't remember what it was and and so then I don't even know the interaction but I said for him to do something go upstairs he was telling me no and then he started to throw a fit and I'm like Hudson you go upstairs it's bedtime you know my voice is going up a bit and I'm getting firm like Hudson it is time to go to bed go to like we're going up the stairs right now and then he just says something like you said and then I realized like I had said something. I had communicated something with him. I don't know what it was, whether he thought he was getting a treat or whatever. I had communicated something with him that he thought he didn't have to go to bed right away and that he was going to get to do something or play something or eat something. And all of a sudden, I've ripped that out of his hands. I've broken a promise. And, and probably because I was thinking about this sermon, not because I'm a nice guy, I thought, man, what would, what would it be like to be him? Two years old, and frankly, I struggle with this with my son because he's such a good communicator for a two-year-old. I forget how young he is, and I treat him just like I treat his sister because, because we have these logical conversations, and so I'll get on him quicker than I ever would have got on Hazel when, he was, when she was that age. And I just thought, like, what if somebody had just broken a promise to me or that I was confused about what was going on? How bad would I feel as I was being marched up the stairs like I was in trouble for having done nothing at all except try to hold my dad, who I idolized, try to hold him to a standard of obeying his promises? How dare this man send me upstairs? I'd be frustrated. I would be angry. I mean, maybe you could do it like this if, if you... Uh, if, if you like had a boss and, and you thought they had communicated to you that you were going to get a pay raise and then all of a sudden you got a pay decrease, you would be like pretty upset about that. And then your boss would just be like, hey, get over it and move on if they didn't take time to go, wait a minute. Wh what, what is it that they are thinking? Why are they feeling this way? What is it that has changed in our relationship? I think that if we're going to be good communicators, then we need to try to understand why people are coming from where they are coming from, and, and we need to do our best to feel for them in those situations. I, I listened to a clip from a, a sermon um, by a guy named Judas Smith the other day, and, uh, and 
he, he, was, he had this idea that I, I think is brilliant, and, and I don't know if he's right, but I think it's, it would be interesting nonetheless. He, he basically, I don't know the context of this at all, but he said, what if, what if everybody in the world just shut their mouths and, and listened to another person and where they're coming from and why they struggle with the things they do for 15 minutes. All over the world, uh, we just took turns for 15 minutes, one person to another, just listening and trying to understand where that other person was coming from. He said, I think it would change the world. I don't think he's wrong because I think we're so busy communicating that we don't actually understand why the other people are communicating something we don't like or that we find offensive. But if we would understand where they were coming from, we still may disagree, but at least we would communicate back in a way that is, that is compassionate and sympathetic, and I think that would be world-changing. And then he says, be humble. Man, I, man, this for me, this is, I talk a lot. I, uh, I, the average male speaks some like 10,000 words in a day, and I'm just way past that mark I just fly past that and and I and I realize and I hate this I don't like this about myself I don't say this lightly this is a this is a real confession I think it's because I'm arrogant I, I think a lot of times and this is funny to say when I'm preaching a sermon but but a lot of people or a lot of times it comes down to me thinking that what I have to say is more important than what other people have to say that my words are going to impact them but their words probably won't impact me that what I have to say really matters and what they have to say kind of matters you know and, and I think that we communicate poorly and frankly too often because we we are not humble we are not lowering ourselves and that's part of love by the way but we are not lowering ourselves and saying man maybe what you have to say is more important remember I said that Jesus was was quick to listen and slow to speak and we're commanded to be the same I think that the thing that is the barrier between between us doing that and not doing that is simply that we're too prideful and Jesus wasn't Jesus was the perfect image of humility, and so he was able to listen to what other people had to say. Peter continues in in 1 Peter 3, 9, Do not repay evil with evil, or, notice this, this is hard, insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. I think it was so easy, what would have been easy for me in preaching this uh, as far as communication is concerned, to skip right past all of those internal things and jump right to, here's your actions. But I don't want you to forget uh, so much of what 1 Peter 3, 9 says and so much of the ability to do what he says in this verse is about us being compassionate and like-minded and loving and humble. But with that in mind, just listen when he says, don't repay evil with evil. And I think we all kind of know that that's a good thing. Uh, if you're a Christian, maybe if you're not a Christian, you, you probably have heard this phrase, turn the other cheek, something that Jesus said. This was about not repaying evil with evil. Maybe you've heard this phrase, that uh, this is God talking, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. We're not supposed to be people of vengeance if we follow Christ, if we are Jesus following people. And, and often I think when we think about like vengeance is mine or turn the other cheek, I think of bigger things and not smaller things. Like, okay, if somebody beats me up, then I shouldn't seek retaliation. I shouldn't want to fight them back. If somebody kills my family member, that's, I know I'm going way over extreme here, but if somebody kills one of my family members, then I should not seek out revenge and kill one of their family members. But here's where it gets really hard. Don't repay insult with insult. 
that's such a small thing that feels, you know, far more natural to do, to repay insult with insult than killing somebody, right? Or, you know, breaking somebody's property because they broke yours. Don't repay insult for insult. And this refers, by the way, to abusive or insulting speech or talk. It it could apply not just to the actual words that come out, but, and this is so hard for me, but the way in which those words come out of the other person's mouth. Um, I, uh, I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm gonna, um, I, uh, I've been in two pretty big arguments uh, golfing before, um, and, uh, and the last three, actually there's been three times when I've been in pretty heated arguments uh, over golf things, and the last one, um, I already see my uncle laughing in the back because he was there, uh, the last one was at a driving range, making it all the, just it's the worst thing ever, but uh, my kids were with me, I, don't, it was, I think Hudson was born, at least Hazel was with me. And Hazel, we're at a driving range, a crummy little driving range. And, and so Hazel's talking. I'm pretty good with my golf etiquette, but I, I'm not thinking about golf etiquette on a driving range. It's where you go to not have golf etiquette. And, and so Hazel's not being any, you know, not being super loud, not being obnoxious, but she's talking like a kid will talk. And as, as this guy walks away, he hasn't said a word to me, he says something about keeping your kids quiet or something like that. And I actually think he says it to my dad and not to me. And I, that, my dad does well, just, okay, whatever, like, that's good. I don't. I, I say something back as the guy walks away, and he continues to walk. Well, it turns out that the guy right next to me, and this maybe factors into why we shouldn't insult people with insults, but the guy next to me is buddies with the guy who walks away. And so then he turns, and he starts saying something very negative to me. I don't remember what. He's making fun of me. He's calling me scrawny. Apparently, he knew I didn't play football. I mean, he's, he's just going at me. And it's, I, I, I stayed pretty calm, but I was returning everything that he had to say with something back. I wasn't going to let him have the last word in this. It got to the point where he told me he was going to kick, and I, I think this is almost a quote with the swear mo- word removed. Um, I will kick your scrawny little butt. <laughs> like, okay, first of all, you wouldn't, old man. That's probably against what this sermon is about <laughs> right there. Uh, it got to that point, and all of it was simply because I, I just couldn't let the insult go. I had to keep it going. I, I never threatened to fight him. I didn't, it didn't get that bad. If you were standing, you know, 15 feet away, you would have not been like, I can't believe that's my pastor. You would have been okay. But, but I could have diffused the situation just by saying sorry, or I probably wouldn't have said that because I'm not a liar. I would have said like, you know, hey, we'll, we'll try to keep her quieter or something like that. Uh, and it would have been over. But there was something inside of me that wasn't, and frankly, like, wasn't uh, compassionate enough or sympathetic enough or loving enough or humble enough just to let it go. And if I would have done all those things, uh, clearly the guy had some weird anger because I kid you not, this is how the story ends. Nobody said a thing about Trump. Not a single thing about Trump. And this is so indicative of our society today. And the guy goes, well, at least we can all agree that Trump is terrible. <laughs> what? Like literally out of nowhere. And then, and then the conversation, and then he was like calm and like just talking normal again. And, and I came out of it going, that, that was weird. But clearly there's like some anger issues at, at 
the world, and President Trump apparently, that was leading this guy to have this conversation with me. And if I just would have paused and said, where's this guy coming from? Like, why is he so mad about my kid? You know, like, what is that? Then the conversation would have gone a lot better. And this is exactly, I mean, this is exactly what Peter is saying. You don't need to return these insults with insults. You don't need to elevate your voice when somebody elevates their voice. You need to be a person that is compassionate and sympathetic and loving and humble. And if it's another Christian, you need to be like-minded with them in order that you don't repay insult with insult. In fact, this is so interesting to me. He says, don't repay evil, or, or you should repay evil with blessing, with blessing. And this word, interestingly, and we don't think of it this way, but in, in Greek, the word is, is primarily uh, a word about the things that we say. Uh, it's to speak well of others or praise them as men towards God or of men towards men. It's to bless properly, to invoke God's blessing on someone. Of God towards men, that is to say, to distinguish with favor or confer happiness. It's about saying primarily, it's about saying things that are a blessing to the other person. I'm going to tell you something in a minute about that, but, but I just want to point out, he says, why? This is so fascinating. Because this, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing yourself. We've been called into this thing that is so such a blessing to us. I mean, First Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him. Pay attention to this. Who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. First Peter 2, 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you would follow in his steps. God's looked at us and he has called us into a blessing and that blessing is that we were called from darkness into light we were called from death to life we were called from guilt to forgiveness we were called from enemies of God into children of God we were called from damnation to salvation and Peter says because you were called into such an incredible blessing where God will someday look at you and say well done my good and faithful servant despite the fact that you deserved eternity in hell God returned upon your evil, incredible grace because you've been called into that faith if you're a Christian. Then when somebody does something evil to you, when somebody insults you, you should repay them with a blessing by speaking kind words into their lives and doing kind things for them. I mentioned last week that, uh, that in my darkest, most bitter days, the, the worst days of, of my some of the worst days of my life when I wanted to hate people and not forgive people God kept whispering in my ear he just kept saying that I forgave you you must forgive them and then I said I did and I I I think I kind of left it there but I want to tell you what does that look like these are not people I was going to talk to Um, I really couldn't talk to them I don't think they would have taken my phone calls frankly and so the question becomes, what did you do? Well, I read this book called Total Forgiveness, which I, I recommend as a book. If you struggle with forgiveness, if you want to, if you have somebody in mind right now that you're thinking I should forgive, Total Forgiveness is a great book. I think you can even borrow it from me. I think I still have it. And, and I don't remember all the things that this book said, but it basically said you need to do your best to remove all punishment for, from, their, from them, like any punishment you're trying to instill for their lives, and, and you need to find a way to bless them. That's pretty much the idea. I'm like, well, what does that look like? I can't see them. 
And so I would start to pray for these people that, that I felt had wronged me deeply and badly. They'd hurt me, if nothing else. And I would just pray, God, bless them. Make things good for them. Help them. Help them to think about you. Help them to grow in you. And I barely meant any of it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was just forcing those words out of my mouth. But over time, God changed my heart. And I think that's what Peter is getting at when he says, look, look, when somebody's done an evil against you, you bless them. There's, there's a few ways that I think we can bless people. I mean, we can speak to them in a way that is uplifting or encouraging them. You can express gratitude towards those people. And maybe you can just find one little ounce of gratitude inside of yourself and you just go up to him and you say, man, I'm so thankful that you helped me with this or you did this or for the way you do this or whatever. I think the other, another way is that we can pray for people. You can always do that. No matter how much you think you hate somebody, no matter how unforgivable their sin against you has been, you can always say, God, God, please do something good in their lives. Please do something good for them. And then, and then, then this is, I think this is the hardest one because naturally, and we've seen this in the sermon series, naturally the tendency is opposite of this, but we can say nice things about people behind their backs. And, and maybe if you have people that you want to talk badly behind their backs about, maybe a great starting point for you would be to say nice things about them so that you kind of block uh, saying the bad things. If you find yourself talking badly about somebody behind their backs often, think about the best things about that person and start to talk to others about them in a good and positive way. Uh, Paul did this. And by the way, we look at his life and we think what an incredible life Paul lived. He's the apostle. He wrote most of the New Testament. He, he changed the world, like the whole entire world through his spreading of the Christian gospel story. It's incredible. And, and so he, I mean, we read in 1 Corinthians 4.12, when we are cursed, we bless. But even more than that, Jesus did it. And we talked about his example, but I think it's so important to bring up his example in this thing. Uh, what we believe as Christians is that Jesus died for our sins. And if we give him our lives, then, then we get to come into the family of God and spend eternity with him. But while we, while he was dying for our sins, people were literally looking at him as he was being tortured and executed, and they were cursing him. I mean, there's tons, there's several examples of this, but the, the worst one is that while Jesus is under arrest, in my opinion, it's the worst one, the crowds, the masses, they chanted, crucify him, crucify him. And in the gospel of Luke, it's incredible. You see those words, and the next thing Jesus says is a warning for women. He turns his attention to these women, and he, he's like, I need to teach you one more thing before they kill me. But then after that, it's so beautiful. Hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If we're trying to be like Jesus, then we're going to return evil and insult with blessing. It's really hard to do, but that's the Jesus that we serve. That's the Jesus we follow. I'm even amazed that as he hung up there on that cross and the crowds passed by and they hurled insults at him. That's a direct quote from the gospel writers. They hurled insults at him. He's looking down and he's like looking and he's taking care of his mom. And he's looking at the guy next to him on the cross who's hanging there and, and, and one of the guys and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's just like a blessing spurting machine while, while people are mocking him and he's hanging on a cross. 
Like I can barely be nice to people when I'm hungry, but the Jesus that I follow is dying for the sins of the world and saying kind things to people while he's doing it. I want to be more like him. I want to be more like him. Now, how does this connect to living your best life? Listen to 1 Peter 3.10, the next verse. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. This is a quote from Psalm 34, 12 through 16. He says, if you want to love your life, and I want to point out and make this so clear, this doesn't mean that your life will be trouble-free, that you'll be without hardship. In fact, Peter struggled a ton with hardships. He was, history tells us, killed upside down on a cross for his faith. So Peter, when he says love your life, is not saying your life is going to be all beaches and new jobs and more money if you'll just control your tongue. I would add that he's talking to a group of Christians that, that, that are either being persecuted, but a lot of commentators think that they're going to be persecuted. And so he's talking to a group of people who are about to face intense persecution. And he's saying, hey, if you want to love your life, then keep your lips from evil, your tongue from evil, and your lips from deceitful speech. I think we all want to love our lives. It doesn't mean that things are perfect, but we want to be able to look at our own lives and say, wow, I, I appreciate the way that I'm living. I like the things that I'm doing. I'm happy with this. And a lot of people struggle with that, right? That's a hard thing to do. And Peter says, if you want to love your life, then learn to control your tongue and keep your lips from lying. Now, that's I'm just going to say it. I, I, based on what I've taught in this series, if that would have come out of nowhere with no context, I would have been like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's true. But, but we saw in the book of James that our tongues, and we kind of hashed this out, can set the direction of our lives, right? I, I'll just tell you, if you're walking around mad at people all day, then, then not many people are going to be nice to you, and you're going to not like your life as much. I gave this example when I taught on the passage of James. If you walk in, give your uh, boss a little cuss out, and, and then walk out, you're going to get fired, and you're not going to love your life as much. You're just not going to be as happy with the direction of your life. And so it makes sense to me, given those things, that, Je- that Peter is right here when he says, if you want to love your life, then learn to control your tongue. Learn to say things that are blessings instead of insults because you're compassionate and kind and loving and caring and humble and sympathetic and all of those things. But what I struggled with more, this was, this was hard for me, is that he says, if you want to see good days, then you must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from lying. I was like, sound right to me like eyeball test that just just doesn't seem true like we all know that we could be the nicest people in the world and and our days could be bad we can have bad days despite the fact that all day long we've said good things to people that can happen I dug a little deeper and and what I saw is that this Greek word behind good is is a different word than the good life I talked about earlier the beautiful life it's in fact a word that more literally means worthy of admiration, admirable, hence good. Even Wikipedia has an entry on this word in, in biblical Greek, and, and they describe it as good, brave, noble, or moral. Hmm. It's a life that matters to the people around you. That's what he's saying when he says good. Now that I believe, right? 
Because a life that doesn't matter is a life that doesn't learn to control the tongue. In fact, a life that is hurtful to others is a life that doesn't control the tongue. But a life that learns to use the voice that we have, the communication that we do to build others up, that's, that's good. That's a good life. I hope, man, I, I just so simply, if I could look back at the end of my days and uh, you know how Tom Sawyer got to look in on his, on his funeral, you know that scene, and, and if people would just say two things, Huckleberry Finn, Huckle, who is it Tom, it's Huckleberry Finn, right, that looks back in his life, nobody knows what I'm talking about, so it doesn't matter, <laughs> um, um, if I could just look back on my, on my life and, and hear what people had to say about me, if, if they would just say, if you would say these two things, he loved his life and he impacted others, that'd be good enough for me. And here Peter comes along and he says, that happens if you learn to avoid speaking evil, even when others insult you. And you believe that, right? Think about the people who who have impacted you. Uh, Most of them, it's through the words that they say. I was thinking about that John Piper answer, and all of it is connected to his communication, right? He wants to be known as patient to his kids and loving to his spouse and good to the employees who work under him at his church. And and how are those people going to describe him as that if he doesn't ever say anything? It's all connected to the words he says. His kids aren't going to think he's patient because he's going to raise his voice and he's going to say things that are not patient. His wife would call him unloving because of the words that he says or at least how he says them. So much of of us living our best life, so much of us living our best life is connected to the way in which we communicate. And so we must keep our our tongues from evil and our lips from from lying. Tongue is interesting because because, uh, we've already preached, I've already preached on this series, but also, and this is such a great thing to do. In the book of Proverbs, it talks about controlling your tongue and your tongue a whole bunch. If you're going through this series with me and you're really struggling to overcome the things you say and you're like, man, I'm just, I, I hear you, Chad, but I'm not getting the job done, I would totally encourage you to read through Proverbs and make a note of all the things it says about controlling your tongue. Here's three, Proverbs 10, 19. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. Proverbs 12, 18. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 21, 33. Those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. And Peter comes along and he says, if you want to love life and see good days, keep your mouth from speaking evil and, and keep your mouth from telling lies. I just want to hit on that for just one second because I'd, I've, I've known several people who just lie. They kind of lie. And maybe you're one of those people. I, I, I look out and I, I probably don't know what about you if you, you are one of those people. But there has been people in my past that I've just known they lie. And they just lie all the time. And sometimes it's for no good reason. They just, they've made a habit of lying. And, and I'll tell you, just, just in case it's you, that that will not be a part of living your best life. You may think it is, if I just glamorize this, if I just exaggerate this, if I just leave some things out, then, then I'll have a better life. But the rest of us who don't lie, we know that coming clean and telling the truth is always better. Uh, Jesus says about himself, and I'm going to rip it out of context because I think it's a great line, the truth shall set you free. And man, I found that to be true in my life. When I just come clean, I just tell people the truth. It's a lot better. I like my days a lot better. 
And so I just, I mean, I would just ask this, you would think just like about this. What's your funeral going to be like? I don't know if you ever thought about that. I don't know if you want to think about that, but I would ask that you do think about that. What's your, what are people going to say about you? Because, because like, like me at the end of my football season, I mean, if you, if you don't do a very good job, then people aren't going to say very great things about you. You've probably been to two types of funerals, in fact. You've been to the type of funeral where people are doing their absolute best to try to find the, the little bit of good in you to talk, not you, but about the person who's died to talk about. Have you ever been to fu- a funeral like that? Like, you kind of know everybody's making stuff up a little, and, and you, but they're trying to be truthful, and so you're, you're, you're kind of just walking on eggshells because you can't be like, wow, that guy was a jerk, you know, like, uh, amen, you know, like, you can't end a funeral like that. And so it's like, oh, you know, he was, he sometimes worked hard on things and I, I do remember that one time you remember that one time Larry when he said that thing and it was you know if, if maybe you've been to a funeral like that and then there's the other kind of funeral where everybody wants to grab a microphone so that they can say how much of an impact the person had upon their lives and maybe you'll pay attention to that moving forward and you'll see that the communication the communication of that person is what drives the type of funeral. And so I would ask you to think about your funeral. And if you want to have a funeral where they say, wow, they lived their best life, they lived a great life. If you want to get to the end of your life and be able to say, man, I loved that life and others liked it because I impacted them, then you must be a person who, who works on your, your soul so that you become sympathetic and compassionate and loving and humble and you learn to think like other Christians so that when you are insulted, when people communicate negatively towards you, you will communicate in a godly way back. And it's all because godly communication leads to a life that you love and others like. Godly communication leads to a life that you love and others like. Let me pray that you'll do that. Lord, I, I ask that you would... Um, I know this is hard, Lord. I mean, I, you know, I've messed it up even golfing, God. Um, I pray that these people who sit in front of me, uh, people in the band, those who listen online, I pray, God, that you would help us to grow in such a way, to become more like you in such a way, God, that we would communicate uh, words of love and grace and compassion words that build up and don't tear down, God, words that are reflective of the gospel that we who are Christians have, have taken hold of, God, words that are reflective of who you are, Jesus, and, and how you lived when you walked on this earth. I pray, God, that you would grow us in such a way that we would communicate in a godly way. I think it's a big prayer, um, but I pray it's a, a prayer that you would say yes to, Lord. God, I pray for, for people who have heard this sermon and, and haven't given their lives to you. And man, I, uh, there's so many reasons to become a Christian, but Lord, all the things that I mentioned earlier about being called to, they need it. They need forgiveness and they need uh, the hope of a future eternity with you, Lord. And, and God, man, the sadness of funerals for people that don't know you and love you is, is horrible. And, and so I just pray that anybody who will listen to this, who has listened to this or will listen to this, would give their lives to you, Jesus. They'd accept your gospel as true and they would give themselves to you, call you Lord and Savior, God. And for the rest of us, God, I just pray that we would live in light of that wonderful story that you sacrificed 
everything on our behalves. And Lord, when we are insulted, we would bless because that's exactly what you did as you hung on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that for me. I pray these things in your name. Amen.